Round by round, this is a round, then there's an X, another round, round by round. Hey, this is Kurt Stroud with Round by Round Podcast. Joined with me as always is Nate Rock Corey, of no relation to the igneous magma formations that are created by volcanoes. And this week's guest is the one and the only, the amazing Kung Lee. Welcome, Kung. Uh, thanks for having me. Hey, first off, um, you know, because of we understand how like Russian languages work, where it's it's not really Fedor Emelianenko. He's referred to as Emelianenko Fedor. Is Kung your first name or your last name? Actually, Kung is my first name and Lee is my last name. So it is. Yeah. But in Vietnam, uh, it would be Lee Kung. Yeah. I, I, yeah, they 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 call they call me by or <clears throat> if you're you know it's the, if you're Vietnamese they call you by your last name first. That's pretty cool. So yeah. do they use the whole name in introduction. So would they say uh, this here is Lee Kong? Oh, hey Lee Kong, will you get me some rice and? <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> yeah, they they it's not like Lee Kong because that's like. The, the English way of how people say it is they, they call it Le <laughs> kind of like French a little bit. Awesome. Well, it was a French territory, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was occupied by the Fran uh, French for, I think, almost 100 years. Holy moly. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, let's let's get started on, on your story. So you were born in Vietnam. You were born in Saigon. Well, Ho Chi Minh City, but used to be Saigon. In 1972, so right in the middle of the Vietnam War, um, your mom, her mother, your mother's name is Anne, correct? Yes. And is she is she Vietnamese? She is. Yeah, she's Vietnamese. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What's uh what's what's her her uh, biological name? Do you mind saying? Or uh, not biological name. Uh, her Vietnamese name. Anne Phong Lee. Anne Phong Lee. Okay. All right, and she raised you. She raised me. So at what point did she realize that you guys had to get out of Saigon? Well, actually, <clears throat> my my mom's dad, who's my grandfather, uh, he was like a former chief of police. And basically, um, because that's like a like a, a colonel's rank in, in like the U.S. military. Uh, and he was in charge of five cities, but the U.S. government says that you know, basically, we cannot protect you anymore. Uh, you know, he, he, here's your option. You can stay here and be executed, or you can leave, and we can helicopter you out, and you can, uh, we can get you to a refugee camp in the Philippines. And so my, that's what my grandfather decided to go with, and so they said, you have two hours, one luggage, <clears throat> each person in your in your family, and meet back here in two hours, or you'll miss your window. And we made it back. I think my I think the story is we made it back in an hour and a half, and we're out of there. And this was about two or three days before the fall of Saigon, right? This was the week right before the fall of Saigon. And it went straight to the Philippines from there. Sorry, Kurt. Yeah, I don't know exactly, but we ended up in the Philippines, like a refugee camp in the Philippines for like two two months, two and a half months. Then we were transferred to 
uh, a refugee camp in Guam, and then from Guam we stayed there for maybe like four or five weeks, and then we got a sponsor, and we uh, moved to Monterey, and we stayed there for a bit, and my grandfather uh, moved to San Jose and started working out there, and you know, that's where we got the house, and so we were like that family with, you know, like four bedrooms, but we had like 12 or 13 people in the household, <laughs> so, sorry. Wow, to... so how many how many of you um, fled Vietnam at the time on that helicopter trip? Uh, it was, I think, 12 of us, 12 and of us. All relatives? Yeah, everyone, uh, you know, my great-grandmother, all my aunts and uncle, you know, of course, my grandfather and his wife and my grandmother, and uh, we were lucky to get out. Do are are they all still in the uh, Bay Area in Northern California? Yeah, my mom lives in um, Fremont. Uh, my grandparents uh, they move around to like you know, you know, either my aunt's uh, my middle my middle aunt's house or uh, my uncle's house. So yeah, they they trade back and forth until they can't handle them anymore. They they, they send them off to the um, the other uh, brother or sister. But my mom does a lot of the legwork. She'll pick them up every day and then drive them to wherever they want to go or whatever they want to do. And and then, uh, and you know. Do you know what work your grandfather found when he got here to America? Was he able to go into some some uh, well-to-do type of work because having such skills being essentially a colonel over there or did he have to come over here and start with just lower immigrant type work or what? Well, um, he, no, luckily, he, you know, he spoke four languages and and uh, um, he, he said he was a translator and he worked for the, the government. Oh, well. What, what four languages? I assume, you know, obviously English, Vietnamese, French. French. French and Chinese. Wow, uh, Cantonese or Mandarin? Ah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure by Mandarin. Yeah. So, are you bilingual? Uh, I speak Vietnamese and and of course English. Okay. I did try to do Spanish in high school, but yeah, I didn't do too good. How good's your Vietnamese? Uh, I speak it very well, but uh, writing it's because uh, they have all the weird accents on them. It's it drives me nuts. So do you speak uh, Vietnamese to your kids? No, no. I I, st I call my mom up and like she'll tell me to speak English, but I, I try to speak Vietnamese with her. She's trying to get better, you know, like get better with her English, and I'm trying to get better with my Vietnamese. So whenever I go on the radio or I talk to the fans, I'm able to speak to them fluently. Right. You really should reconsider talking to your kids in Vietnamese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm been in the Vietnamese school. <laughs> That's awesome. So, being a Viet, do you? All right, odd question. Do you consider yourself a Vietnamese American? Do you consider yourself American? Uh, wh what does that feel for you? I am uh, Asian American. Asian American. Yeah. Okay. Do uh, do do you get opportunities to uh, talk with the Vietnamese media or anything like that? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm always in touch with the Vietnamese uh, media, whether it's before a fight or uh, a movie that I was in or whatever I'm doing. I always try to keep the Vietnamese community updated on whatever I do. 
Do you know what your following is like over there? Uh, I think, uh, you know, every time I go over there, uh, there's a lot of people, and uh, um, I, I think it's it's pretty good. It's uh, uh, it's a lot better than over here. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. You have a, quite a big following over here, but you know, yeah. You know, I mean, I think over here they either love you or they hate you, right? So over there, most of them they 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 love me. So. Well, we might hate you here because you're you're coming over here and taking our jobs. <laughs> I mean, I could have been the San Shao champion like that. Yeah, seriously, I could have been undefeated in San Shao, but you took that from me. You know, never mind. I didn't. I didn't train. You know, I thought you guys were talking like engineering or, or like bio. Wait, did you take no. our engineering job too? <laughs> Not me. No desire to be engineer. Other Vietnamese did. <laughs> You know, and actually, I was thinking about I was going to start this movie, um, and uh, my 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 code name in the movie is I'm. They, everybody calls me the Dragon, but apparently, <laughs> apparently you, I'm sorry, you, you took that too. Hey, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because um, I I watched the uh, the YouTube uh, two or three days ago, and uh, yeah. it's pretty pretty cool. Um, you know, basically, uh, you know, of course, everyone knows who James Bond is. Uh, everyone knows who John Rambo is, but like, really, they they really don't know how James Bond became 007. So um, there's really no like Asian like like uh, like an Asian uh, James Bond or an Asian Rambo, right? It's is that because they're just not cool enough or not tall enough? No, it's, it's, it's usually this. We're the stereotype, right? We're either the triads. Or uh, you know the nerdy guys, or you know the guy who's getting killed, and so I, I figure you know I wanted to um, you know get, make a character because you know how like 24/7 everyone's into watching whether it's uh, you know Spike TV or boxing or UFC the journey and and then um, so everyone loves the training so I figure you know I got together and I, I was able to. Uh, go out to Virginia Beach and you know do uh, do my training with the like with the SEAL team, and then at the, you know while I was doing it, you know I got to know the guys really good and and then you know we exchanged information and then I just wanted to you know put a character together that's Asian and and then let everyone see how he became like uh, from just your regular hardworking guy and to the, the badass, and uh, so I put together a code name the Dragon, but obviously it's it's hard to get financing to be the the Asian lead in a in like in a in a Hollywood movie. So what I did was I shot a short and introduced a character where he's already a badass and showed how witty and what kind of skill set he had, and um and shot like a. a I was expecting it to be like a 10-minute short, but ended up being a 23-movie short, 23-minute uh, short film, and it, it recently won uh, the Fog Film uh, Best Short Award. And you know, I'm gonna, uh, you know, take it around and do a couple more um, uh, uh, film festivals. But I'm, I'm already in talks with like Morgan Creek or Das Das Films for the full length, where you see how he becomes, you know. The, the badass character. That's pretty cool. 
So you say that you have a harder time finding financing as a an essentially an Asian star here. Would you contribute that more to because Asians are just a minority here, whereas in in Asia and China and Vietnam, you'd be able to get the financing a lot easier. Because I would imagine if I went over there, it'd be harder for me to get financing. Except that everybody thinks that white people are awesome worldwide, so maybe that's not a problem. White privilege. Well, uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted to make a, like a Hollywood movie, and it's definitely harder to do that here and get the backing. But uh, you know, um, in the last couple of years, you know, putting this project together and you know. Uh, being able to work on a lot of different sets and work on different uh, projects with big name actors, uh, big name producers, you know, um, I was, and, and I learned a lot. And at the same time, I, I, I got a chance to work on these big Chinese movies. And, uh, you know, I, I started, you know, realizing that, you know, I want to go international with the film instead of just doing it domestically. And so I got my friend's, uh, who are writers, and they helped me, um, you know, put um, my story in my head about a character who, you know, um, who becomes this, uh, like, soldier of fortune for revenge uh, into a script format. I just would write down all the bullet points, and I would just have, you know, like, weekly discussions and to see where where the script's at, and then they would just put it into a script format, and now I got a, a like a, a script, which recently uh, I, I, I attached the director, um, uh, this guy named uh, Jesse uh, Johnson. Uh, he's done a few smaller movies, um, but uh, uh, he's he's just waiting for that right project to break, and I think he you know he's going to do a great job on on, on the project, and I, I you know I believe Morgan Creek's on board and. Dash, we're talking to Dash Films right now. I think Warren Creek's, uh, you know, it's going to be between who's going to get international and who's going to get domestic. Nice. Is there a, like a support structure with other uh, of the popular Asian American actors, or not necessarily Asian American actors, but Asian actors that have transitioned over into American film? Have you been able to reach out to any of them and and ask for advice or? Um, you know the do's and the don'ts of the business. Well, you know, I, there, there's, uh, there's a lot of, you know, uh, you know, big names, you know, Asian actors. Uh, you know, uh, one who recently who's going to be really big is a, a friend of mine, Daniel Wu. You know, I brought him out to oh, wow. in China, and then, uh, you know, he came out and talked to some of the guys, and you know, um, he recently brought me onto his project, Into the Badlands, on AMC. And um, you know, it's a that's going to be a really kick-ass project. It's like really heavy martial arts space, and you know, I can't give that much away. But you can think uh, Game of Thrones meets Road Warrior. You know, it's uh, uh, it's going to be good. I think uh, it'll be a huge hit, and it airs in November. And I'm on the final episode, like the finale, and um, I definitely uh, come on and you know get a chance to show my skill set and. You know, do a lot of crazy stuff, and I did all my own stunts, and it, it was definitely a very fun and uh, a great experience to be on that set. And uh, you know, you'll see if uh, I get a chance to be in uh, season two or not. And and that's uh that's AMC, you said? Yeah, that's AMC. Wow, that's nice. They've that's they've awesome. been putting out some really good product lately, with the yeah, exception of Bad, Walking Dead, because it's Breaking Walking Bad Dead and Breaking Bad are just atrocious as shows. But yeah, it's, the we're entire not here world to talk wrong. about that. You're correct, Kurt. 
Yeah, there's nothing bald. wrong with that. Hashtag fact. Hashtag bald idiot. Well, <laughs> and just so you know, Kong, if you ever need any help, I'm six foot two, about 195 pounds. If you need to throw around this really big guy, I'm your man. Nate, right. not so much. He's got a bad back, his <laughs> hips. He's got hip dysplasia, just like a German Shepherd. You don't want him. Listen, I've got and he's not scary looking. Look at him. He's got that beard. He's got a groomed beard. <laughs> I, I gotta take a. I gotta take care of my Clash of, Clash of Clan brothers first, though. Well, okay, all right. So let's get into that real fact. I heard a rumor that you spent over a thousand dollars on Clash of Clans. Is that true? Who said that? Yeah, it's you. How, how much have you spent? dollars. Dude, you need to screenshot your clash and then tweet it. Well, see, I, I have this rule, right? Because, you know, sometimes when you, you, you build something and it takes like 14 days to finish, just, that's just too long. So I earn the elixir or the gold or the dark elixir, and then once I get it, I let it go for a few days, and when I really need it, I just jam it to finish. But, you know, I, I, I play on, like, Three different accounts, so it's 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 not like a thousand for one. So you you want to hear something interesting here? Here's a uh, here's a message I got from Kung the other day when he he accidentally put me into one of the battles. Now I've been playing this for like two months, so I am beyond noob. Nate, what's up? Hey, um, make sure uh, you go in with dragons, dragons. And then in your um, clan castle, the CC, ask for two max loons. <clears throat> and then uh, drop the dragons first and drop the loons behind them, and your dragons should destroy those two small bases. Um, uh, but uh, I, I don't even think... Yeah, these are the kind of phone calls that I get from uh, fighting champions. <laughs> Knocking fools <laughs> out, breaking arms. Uh, make sure you go on the your dragons first because they're like the, the most popular ones and, and, and get a couple of match loons and I oh but so in my first battle I won all three Six stars, stars man. oh no five five stars in my second battle or my second whatever you want to call it of, of that game I only won two stars so I got the I got the depressed text message from Kung after that uh, yeah, buddy. We we really need okay, six stars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it it always blows me away, and people are like, "Oh my God, fighters are so cool." No, no, we're not. <laughs> I see I see cooler people at comic cons. No, no, you don't. <laughs> I could. You, you see much happier people at comic cons. <laughs> so you know your your uh, your teammate. Or a former teammate, Kyle Kingsbury, has a has a term for for you, Kong. People oh, that play Clash of Clans. I think well, he he calls you guys cockboys. Oh, okay. Well, you know, he wears a fanny pack, so he does. <laughs> and then pink shorts. Yeah. Although I am wearing a, a salmon colored shirt. That is red. That is an amazing shirt that you stole from me. I didn't steal it. And this is salmon. This is not red. It has the fit of an affliction shirt without the without the douchebaggery attached to it. I still have the affliction shirt that you gave me. Like, where did you fight Jason McDonald at? Was that Canada? Uh, Canada, yeah. 
I still have the shirt that you gave me from there with the tag still attached to the armpit, and I wear that with the tag in the <laughs> armpit. That is cool. That is the epitome yeah, of cool. It is. When I'm at the gym, you know, I'm getting my swole on. I need people to, to recognize. I noticed that that shirt has a tear in the sleeve there. Yeah, can you send me a new one? Because I don't <laughs> well, have, I don't have up, strength. Put together another tour, and then you can just rummage through my bags. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. <laughs> so, Kong, let's start talking about your uh, your fight career. It's it's an extremely impressive career. Um, but uh, when did you start martial arts? Uh, I started martial arts when I was ten years old. Uh, you know, my mom put me in martial arts because, you know, coming to America, uh, you know, I was uh, picked on a lot and. Uh, I didn't do too good back then because I was getting beat up a lot. So I came home with like either, you know, some blood by my no on my nose or a black eye. And so my mom says, you know, it's time for you to learn how to defend yourself. And even though I she joined me up into uh, you know, some taekwondo when I was ten, uh, I was never consistent enough to you know rank any higher than a yellow belt because I couldn't remember my forms. But I started wrestling when I was in seventh grade, and that that's where I really took off and found like you know what I wanted to do uh, throughout you know um, you know middle school and and then high school and, and two years in college. Then after college, I wanted to get back into martial arts, and and then, you know everything just came together, and basically uh, I found uh, Sanda, which is uh, you know back then they called it Sancho, and it was a uh, punching, kicking, sweeping, and wrestling, and that's like a Chinese style full contact and I just took off with that and went to three different world championships and represented the US uh, national team and then um, uh, got bronze at, you know uh, each time and then I just uh, turned pro and and then uh, met Scott Coker and fought on ESPN and then you know he uh, basically promoted his first show uh, uh, in mixed martial arts, and I was like all game for it, and I jumped on board and, you know, um, tried out um, mixed martial arts. So really your your first passion, would you say, was wrestling? Yeah. Because you were, you were an amazing wrestler in California. You know, in uh, 1989, you were the AAU uh, Freestyle and Greco National Champion and the 1990 California JC National Champion. Um, yeah, that's... No easy endeavor. No. Did you plan on going on to like a four-year school or, or a Division One college in Russell? I, I wanted to, but you know, um, at the time, my 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 ex-girlfriend and my ex-well, she became my wife and then my ex-wife. I just stayed back and did the wrong thing instead. Of, I should have went away to college, but I stayed back and yeah, Why not? yeah. Uh, but I have two kids from her, and I love them, and everything happened for a reason. Maybe if I would have went on, I wouldn't have a, I wouldn't have gotten a chance to, you know, become the martial artist that I am today. So it is what it is, and I'm happy that I've done everything I've done. One of your big moves was the scissor kick, right, or the scissor sweep? Yeah. yeah. What was that? I so <clears throat> when I started training, uh, I was like 24 or so, and after probably four years of training, this kid just out of high school, really good wrestler, started training. He would not sh shut up about this guy, Kung Lee, 
and how amazing he was, and that he had this incredible scissor kick takedown that he was always working to get better, and he would pull it off on guys. So that's when I became aware of your career and started watching you. The thing I was always the most upset about was you were phenomenally so much better than anybody you were competing against. It was ridiculous. You were the Ronda Rousey, the, the Hoist Grace, the Mike Tyson of Show. And I saw you fight live in Vegas at a casino there, Show. I remember Muhammad Ali was in the crowd, I think it was, and you fought some white guy, and it looked like the white guy, all he had was kickboxing, and you just completely tooled him, just wrecked him. Was Is there a, more competition in Show elsewhere, or is it just here in the States, it's not as big a sport, or am I just yeah. not aware of it? Actually, in the States, you know, it's not as, as big as, like, if it's in Russia or in China or in Iran. So every time, like, I went to the World Championships, like, the top five teams, whether they're, like, um, China, Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, um, uh, Iran, uh, Korea, I mean, all those teams were, like, professional. They would pay their pay their athletes and you know like the Iranian team if they would win the the world championships they're either getting a house or they're getting a car or they're getting ginormous bonuses I mean they're paid by the government to just train and compete so um, uh, you know I was you know matched up you know against a lot of those guys and you know I was uh, you know either um, you know as an amateur I was I was I was the one paying to go over there and uh, raising my own money to, you know, get by. So a lot of times when we I went over there, it was like on a budget. We'd throw some top ramen in the bag and, you know, in case we didn't have enough food, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was like that. You know, so I paid to compete against, like, professionals. And I actually beat a lot of professionals. And, and then uh, when I did lose, I just lost by points just being – Unexperienced and getting pushed off the leotide because we fought we fought off on a on this leotide and you get shoved out twi- two times then you lose that round then you go back and and then uh, you know you go in the second round so if you lose um, two rounds the match is over because you know there's like seventy something countries so the brackets are like like in wrestling from you know like, there's like fifty countries in each bracket and you just fight like you know five, six fights until you get to the finals. Hmm. I heard a rumor a long time ago, and uh, let's see if it's how true it is, because, you know, internet rumors, nine times out of ten, they're completely true. Uh, so Anderson Silva, he's only lost four times in the last ten years, twice to Weidman, once to Yushin Okami before the UFC on Rumble on the Rock, and then to Rio Chonin. And uh, Rio... Uh, Hit, I think, second or third round, hit the uh, the the scissor takedown, and then slapped on a heel hook on Anderson. Uh-huh. And uh, big rumor was is that that takedown was directly attributed to you, um, that you had taught that, or he had watched, either he had stated in an interview he had seen you do it enough that he thought this is something that I can do. Have Have you ever heard that? I've never heard of it, but since you said it, cool, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> now well, it's yours. Now, now we know it's true. <laughs> so um, is is Sancho, uh, is it still a passion? Sancho? You know, and martial arts is a passion. It's always like been a passion for me. You know, um, 
uh, you're always a student of the game. You know, of course, there's a lot of guys, um, you know, grandmaster or whatever. Uh, for me, I'm just I'm a student, and whatever I can learn, I, I try to learn, and whatever that's not useful, I don't I don't bother with, and whatever I can learn that can be applied, whether it's in training or in a match or in a movie, I'm all over it. Do uh, do do you try and do as many cross um, styles as possible, or, or do you stick to any ones in particular? Because it seems like you're really just you love the stand-up aspect. You love the kicks more than the hands. Um, you know, but even though your background was wrestling, it doesn't seem like you were ever. Uh, and I, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But it doesn't seem like you had the passion for grappling that you did, let's say, for a. A spinning back kick. Like you would pick a spinning back kick over an arm bar any day of the week. Is that true? You know, like for, for me, I, I love to, uh, you know, improve every area that I'm weak on. And, you know, of course, a lot of people say, oh, you know, probably his weakness is my ground. I, I only got to a blue belt, but I continue to train. I just didn't, I didn't like to be in the gi. So my trainer back then was Garth Taylor. And then uh, he, he didn't want to give me my purple belt because I didn't, I wasn't in the gi enough. So I just continued to train because my my career was, you know, fighting without, you know, like in inside the octagon or inside the cage, and and uh, I felt like the gi just it didn't help me. I know other people, you know, it might help them, but it just didn't help me. And uh, but like for me, I I rather you know get the knockout or do a stand up war rather than be on the ground. So I just have yeah. to are more I'm more comfortable with you know I don't mind being on the ground I you know I enjoy it but I there's no there's of course when you submit to when they tap it's it's a, a a pretty good rush you know but when you see someone go down and or or you hear them when you hit the back kick and you hear them have a hard time breathing it's it's just a lot more exciting. <laughs> So you're a little sadistic, is what you're saying. A little bit, just a tiny bit. Yeah. That is. There's nothing like it, because in, in jiu-jitsu, it's like, oh, yeah, I got caught. I'm fine. I tapped in time. But yeah. when you knock somebody out, and you see the body laying before you, and you hear the lamentations of his woman, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's, he's trying to fake quote Conan the Barbarian right now. So Who? I'm not familiar with his work. Yeah, whatever. Was that that jiu-jitsu guy had the spider web on his elbow? I was going to Silveria. Okay, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> so you you finished up your wrestling career in, I think, like 1991, but it, it seems like you didn't have your very first kickboxing uh, fight until 1997. Uh, what, what were you doing, or, or do I have my dates wrong? Um, no, um I started doing um, like Sanda, which is the San Show style, um, in '94, and I started competing uh, more in that. I was actually doing like Taekwondo tournaments, but every tournament I was going to, it was like a, if it was a regional or something, I would always get disqualified for excessive force. Or, <laughs> so you were that guy. Kong so, was that guy at the tournament. Yeah, so um, I just needed something with more contact, and I just found this flyer, you know, at, at Tiger Claw, and it was like the U.S. Opens, 
you know, um, Sancho competition, full contact. And I caught up the promoter, and the promoter was actually like this monk. Um, and he says, oh, you can punch, you can kick uh, low, middle, high, and you can throw them. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm coming. I'm gonna, how much is it? And he's all, it's $50, you know, to, uh, to fight in, um, you know, one division, but you can sign up for both, and I can give it to you for 75 And I said, I'll do two divisions. You know, so I went in and I fought in two divisions and won both divisions. So um, I just out wrestled everyone back then. And even though I had good kicks, I just you know got a chance to wrestle and got a chance to do a lot of my Greco Roman and and then I had such a blast and I scissor kicked uh, you know a few guys and and then uh, I was hooked after that. <laughs> Did you get booed because you were doing mostly takedowns and not striking? No, I, I would you know I would strike, but then. When they cover up, the takedowns are always there, so I just pick them up or shoot in and come out the back door and souffle them, and people are just like, holy crap. So That's awesome. <laughs> so you went undefeated in kickboxing, 17-0 uh, and 0 for, I think, like a, an eight-year time period, um, and then transitioned into MMA, where I believe all of your fights were either in strike force uh, or the UFC. Yeah, and then um, was was that? Did you transition into MMA just because the money was starting to grow there, or was it just the next evolution of martial arts for you? Well, you know, um, I, when I transferred into MMA, it's just because I haven't done it and I wanted to try it out. And you know, Scott Coker, you know, you know, as a promoter, he promoted all these kickbox kickboxing fights and. He always made it like a big walkout with explosions and the lights, and, and he said, we're going to go above and beyond and just make it really big, and he wanted me to be the co-main event, and it's like history in the making, first time in California, so I you know, jumped at the opportunity to fight mixed martial arts, and after that fight, I was like, hey, you know, there's no, there no wrestling involved, but uh, I got a knockout with a spinning uh, back kick into a punch, and you know, maybe I can do okay at this. So I kept on going, and I got a chance to fight Frank Shamrock for the title, and, you know, it was uh, you know, the probably best uh, highlight of my career when I fought him. How did so you, a, go ahead, Nick. How did you feel about fighting Frank Shamrock? Were you a fan of his? Did you not care for him, as it were? I've heard mixed feelings. Some people don't really care for Frank. Some people are huge fans. Did you have an opinion one way or the other? Well, I, I was already a, like a big fan because you know, you know, I came in for some sparring when he got ready for uh, Tito and and a few of other his fights, just like just straight stand up. And uh, you know, um, of course, uh, you know, I got the better of him. And but he was just so slippery. Every time I threw him uh, down, he would like scramble into some weird position. And and uh, you know, he, um, you know, he 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 was trained by Javier. Mendez back, you know, back then, and you know, Javier definitely put a lot of time and, you know, into him, and you know, then he got a chance to train with Maurice Smith, so he got a chance to train with some amazing strikers, and you know, uh, he he just got better each time, and every time I every time I got a chance to spar him, he, you know, knew what I was going to do, and we we used to have these crazy wars in 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 the gym, like every time I left the gym, you know, I felt like man, you know. It felt like a fight. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, I've heard that about 
him, and I've heard that about you on occasion. No, I'm, I usually have good control until someone's beating me up. <laughs> so, so as long as you're just slightly better than them, you're okay. <laughs> no. no. So this was at AKA, right? Yeah. You came to my gym a few times when I couldn't make it over there. You know, so he would show up right after I teach class, and you know, uh, Javier came over, and you know, Javier coached coached him. There's this one time um, I, I just had you know um, got done teaching class and um, worked out with the students, and he needed some rounds, and he came over, and you know, I was uh, just waiting for him to come over. He, like he said, "Oh, I'll be over in like 30 minutes," but it was like an hour and a half later he comes over, and I. Happened, I got a chance to take a nap. But when he came over, by the time we got done with six rounds of sparring, the, the buckles off my ring and the ropes were had to came off my ring. We were just, it was just like, it was we wore. I, I told, I told um, Javier Mendez back then, then that could have been like pay per view right there because we killed each other. It would have been, it would have been something that people would have tagged on, on YouTube constantly over the last uh, decade. Yeah. Have you seen this? So, are you still at AKA? No, no. Um, um, yeah, I, I um, transitioned out of AKA um, after the Patrick Cote fight. I was Javier was still like in my corner, but he was just so busy with he had too many fighters. So I brought in my uh, old buddy, and I fought him twice. Um, you know, um, Nate, you probably watched me fight, fight Scott Sheely, who's actually a, like a, a Swai Jiao, which is a Chinese-style wrestling champion, and he's like yeah. a kickboxing champion too. So uh, he ended up, uh, he, he trains, uh, he helped rejuvenate Matt Brown, you know, Matt, Brett, Matt Brown's career. And then I just figured, you know, after uh, the Vandalay fight, you know, um, uh, I just needed uh, – something different you know I just can't go in with a bunch of guys and you know train and feel like I left everything in the gym and I'll, I'll, you know King Mo beat me up a few times you know cracked my rib and I, I was you know I was only good for a round against Vanley and uh, I just figured I needed something else and and then uh, Scott came over and kind of just uh, focused on what I did you know uh, back in my Sancho day and and then just made a game plan to um, use the first round to make them believe that you know it's safe to stand there and and don't worry about the spin kicks because it's not coming and I'm, I was just really basic punch punch kick and you know don't throw any spin kicks till the second round and, and it actually worked out pretty good. So do you think because I've always had an issue with uh... Um, the type of sparring that takes place within the MMA world, you know, places like Team Quest, um, AKA, you know, uh, Extreme Couture, that the sparring was never controlled. The sparring was almost live fighting um, at as close to 100% that you can, just you're wearing shin pads and a headgear, uh, you know, which is not an intelligent way to prepare for a fight. Um, so was was that the environment that you were feeling like you needed to get away from, or or was it something else? Well, you know, in the gym, it's 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 not always that way. You got guys that can control, but then you got guys that they just go in and you know they they swing for the fences, and you know it's just if one day you you pair up with someone that you can really you be able to work with that's a great training day you know and but then the next day someone who's you know 
trying to knock you out during during the sparring matches, then you know you you de- definitely feel the effects of that the next day for training. So that that reminds me of uh, your fight against Scotty Smith. Now you fought him twice, and when I I heard you were gonna fight Scott Smith the first time, because I trained with Scott and I'd seen you fight for a long time, I thought Kung's got this in the bag, and yet he was able to weather the storm and take you out, and then. When you got the rematch, it seemed like this time you you took it seriously. Was that the case in the first fight? You you weren't taking it seriously, or were there some other factors that we weren't aware of? Because honestly, and when I say I trained with Scott before, it was a couple times, and he's got this gas tank that's either a hundred percent or he shuts it down. Uh-huh. And so even in the sparring ring, he would go really hard for ten, maybe fifteen seconds, and then just literally cover up, get his win back, and then just come right back out again. And so when I saw that first fight, it seemed like that's what he was doing. He would come out full blast, and then he'd cover up, and you kind of seemed like you are almost a little confused that he's not engaging you, and you're kind of stalking, but then it also looked like you weren't in shape for that fight. What was the backstory on that one? Backstory is, you know, I came off, um, you know, making uh, True Legends, Pandorum, and um, uh, uh, Bodyguards and Assassin, and uh, Scott Cooker, well, you know, sat me down and said, hey, I need a main event. I'm like, how many weeks do we have? And he said, yeah, seven weeks. I'm like, oh, shit, I, I don't think I can get in shape. So I really need a main event. And I said, all right, you know, I'll do it. I, I, I've missed it, but before you announce it, let me, uh, you know, let me see how week one training does. And, like, uh, you know, after, like, week one, I was so sore. And he's all, so can I announce it yet? I'm like, no, another couple more days. Let's see if this soreness will get out, of, you know, get out, get out of my system. And uh, you know, by the time the third day, uh, you know, in the second week, I was, I felt a little bit better. And so I called him out, said, yeah, uh, you know, go ahead and announce it. And they announced it, and and then, uh, you know, I, you know, I did my best to. Uh, I, I felt like I, I hit him with everything, and and the kitchen sink. I just like have. Like when I hit him, like I didn't condition my shins. It's, I was out for almost a year and a half, and like you know, a few times I caught a couple elbows. I'm like, oh my god, you know. <laughs> I, usually, I don't feel the pain until after the fight, right? Right, right. When I hit him, I was like, oh man, that hurt so bad. You know, so <laughs> That's the worst. It, and then uh, you know, I you know, I felt like there, I thought it was going to be over when I did that spinning kick, and he flew to the fence. And I jumped on him, and I was just punching him. And then, like, when the referee didn't call it, so I tried to punch him harder, and I just kind of blew my gas tank right there. And come second round, I was just, okay, I'm going to score some points. I did a couple more spin kicks. And then uh, third round, I think uh, all I had to do is just stick and move. But instead, I try to, you know, I you know, I just went back to my corner, and my coverage was all, just score your points. And I was like, oh, I'm going to try for a takedown. Just maybe I can – I'll hold him down, and I went for a takedown and got jammed up against the fence, and then, and then uh, he got he got back up, and that's when I was like, oh my god, <laughs> I don't know what I'm gonna do because I'm so tired. And then he clipped me on the chin, and and then uh, I went down, and and that was you know all she wrote. <laughs> Looking back, how upset are you that no one in your corner put your nose back in place before the <laughs> fight? Because I hate that man. I hate when I look back at when I fought Rich Franklin and he shoved my nose across my face. I look back at him, I'm like, guys, don't let me give any use. Put my nose over here. Just pop it back in. 
when I fought uh, uh, Jorge Rivera. Same thing. My nose was over to the side. The ring doctor comes up and he goes, oh, your nose is broken. I look at him and go, well, put it back in place. And he looks at me and goes, well, I can't do that. And I'm like, well, why are you even here? And I just snapped it back in myself because I hate looking. You just lost. You don't want to have your nose looking stupid after the fight. Did that bother you as well? No, you know what? At, the, at that time, you're not even thinking. You know. But in I, retrospect, are you like, guys, next time, put my nose back in place? I was just like, holy shit, I, I just lost. That's really sucks. <laughs> I didn't care about my nose. I cared about my nose. You know? like, no, I had it in the bag, and I was so winded. And then uh, it just, it, you know, I was, I, my nose is you know, straight out. I, it, it looks it, amazing now. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, but I just, I was more, I was more upset about the loss than my nose. Uh, all right, make me look like I'm shallow asshole. Cool. <laughs> hey, uh, so real quick, why did you vacate the title, the Strike Force World Championship title, after you beat Frank Shamrock? Well, um, I got a chance to work with Don again, and um, you know, my career was really jump like. You know, everyone was, you know, asking me to, you know, come in and be part of their projects. And I, at that point, I got a chance to pick and choose. So, you know, I had a few other uh, projects. And uh, I'm not sure if you guys heard of Scott Atkins. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, he, he, there was a project that, you know, I could have went and worked with him. But instead, I uh, chose the Donnie Yen project and, um, you know, just worked on the Donnie. But then they, they had to fly me back because we had to pick up shots and, and I knew it was going to be uh, like a big hit, and I just, you know, felt like, you know, I, I need to pursue this career, and you know, I, I'm hot at that moment, and and then um, and then then I continued with, the, you know, the acting career. But you know, what it is is you, you get the itch all the time, and you want to go back. And then I realized, man, I better go. It's it's a year and a half now, and maybe after I finish this project, I'll I'll do something, and then. Um, but then I was like, ah, oh, forget it. But then, you know, Scott's like, hey, I need you. And I thought, uh, I'm not sure how long do I have. And that's when he said, he got seven weeks. I'm like, ah, oh, shit. And, you know, I, you know, thought I would be okay in seven weeks. But obviously it didn't work out good. So it is what it is. And real quick for, for the people that are listening that have never seen that fight with you and Frank, uh, I think it was voted the 2008 Fight of the, fight of the Year. And it's an absolutely incredible fight. Um, you essentially kept kicking Frank in the arm, uh, his right arm, I believe, and broke his arm so he couldn't continue. So, I mean, I've, I've never heard of any fight, MMA or kickboxing or Muay Thai, um, where somebody effectively was able to just keep kicking somebody in the, in the arm to the point where it broke, where they couldn't even throw punches anymore. Um, that's a phenomenal accomplishment. Well, I, you know, by that time, I, I started doing a lot of tape study, and I noticed he would block a punch the same way he blocks a kick. And I figure, you know, if I kick it enough, I, I might be able to, you know, hit that nerve and give him some, like a, you know, like a, a stinger in his elbow or his arm. And, uh, and I was in really good shape, so like I hit him a few times, and I was like, "Oh, he's blocking the same way. I'm gonna keep kicking it." And then, you know, that one kick, I heard the bone snap. And I, I a few times, I, I I knew I hurt his arm, so 
I just kept kicking at the same spot. Man, <laughs> it was a great fight. Man. <laughs> in, uh, in 2011, Zufa bought uh, Strikeforce from Scott Coker, um, and your very first fight was against Vanderlei Silva, uh, which, you know, Strikeforce had, had gotten really big at the end, and so it's not like you were fighting this small local show. You were fighting, you know, on the on the big stage, and then going straight into the UFC. Though you probably could have had a much lower ranked 185er uh, to get used to the octagon, but you went right for Vanderlei. Was that a fight that you asked for? Or? Believe it or not, they actually uh, when when I signed on with UFC, because I, I said you know I fought, I, I had the strike first belt. If you know if I can't fight for UFC, then I'll just I'll just retire. I did. I made that announcement at Comic Con. I was promoting um, a yeah. No, I was promoting um, Pandorum, and then so um, uh, they brought me in and uh, basically um, had me. Um, you know, they gave me this contract, and and uh, and uh, I, they actually offered Vitor first. Then Vitor pulled out, and then they said, "Oh, come." Um, uh, you know, Vitor pulled out, but we have Vanley. I said, okay, great, thank you. So, um, it was first Vitor, but yeah, I mean. Again. So, in my opinion, Vito, uh, Vanderlei would have been the, the most difficult person that you had faced. Um, and, you know, going against the axe murderer, how... Was there a psychological impact of that? Were you completely cool with it? Did you think, uh, I wish it was someone else? No, I, I was like, oh, you know, it'd be such an honor to fight, like someone like Manalei or Vitor, and I was, I was definitely up for the challenge, and I did my best to train as hard as I could, you know, for you know, you know, for the fight. So I just, uh, you know, of course, uh, just didn't work out my way. So shortly thereafter, let's see, you fought you fought Vanderlei, and then was Cote your next opponent? It was actually Rich Franklin was my next opponent. Who was the next opponent? Okay. Um, Rich ended up going to fight Vanderlei in Brazil, and then uh, and then um, uh, they brought in Patrick Cote for me to fight in Vegas. And then you fought Franklin after Cote in Macau. Yep. And then you fought Bisping. In Macau, what about a year later or so? Like a, like a almost a year and and a few months later, yeah. Okay, and so the 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 Bisping fight, uh, start of the controversy, start of the the your problems. Well, who knows? There could have been you know back problems or backstage problems with the UFC, but but the the Bisping fight was really your introduction, it seems, into the problems that is uh, Zufa. Um, you were supposed to fight, and you did fight Michael Bisping on what, uh, August 23rd of 2014 in Macau. But shortly before, I think maybe a week, a uh, week before you fought Bisping, a photo surfaced on the internet of you right after training. Um, you were, uh, you know, sweaty, but you were completely shredded, 
extremely vascular, uh, and that you know the the internet rumor started about uh, you and uh, performance enhancing drugs. Mm -hmm. And I got and I got to say, somebody that's you know that's followed MMA since its conception. When I saw that photograph, I absolutely thought, "Yep, he's on something. He's on um, either some type of diuretic. He's on some type of." Uh, uh, I, I didn't think growth hormone, but I thought I thought it was I thought it was something. Uh -huh. And and you you know had in interviews that said no this is you know this was uh, the lighting angle of uh, you know post workout it was just really just that perfect photograph that all guys wish that we had you know with our shredded abs you know because we all pose in the mirror look for the correct angle where we look the best so that way we can selfie and. Get the honeys. Um, well, John, you you had told me because I we spoke about this I don't know six months ago or something like that, and you said in the past you've always been small for a middleweight, but now you're getting older, your metabolism slowing down. So for the first time, you were actually working with a nutrition, a dietitian, and training. Why don't yeah. you explain that a little bit? How how you got that look without using performance enhancing drugs? Well, you know, basically when when, when I start martial arts, if you look at my early days, I'm always vascular. I'm always veiny, and I always, I always stayed lean. And I think the first fight that I looked really, really bad, it was against um, uh, the Vanley fight. But you know, of course, uh, you know, uh, take nothing from Vanley. He beat me, and it was his night. But for that fight, I mean, you know. It, Training with like guys like King Mo, and he crashed my rib. I cut my foot really bad, and I couldn't do any cardio. I just, I, if you look at my like fight against Scott Smith or my earlier fights, you know, I I was I was lean, but for the fight against Vanley, I was pretty you know pretty doughy. What my my. Uh, my trainer uh, now, Scott Shitty, says you got the duck butter going, right? So um, then, you know, against Cote, it got a little bit better. But then, you know, like a lot of people, you don't realize that. Like after Cote, I thought I broke my foot. And since, uh, you know, Dana White says, you know, um, I need you for, you know, Macau, I was like, I don't think I can fight. My foot, I think it's broken. So I went to the doctors and they said it's not broken, but it's a deep, bone bruise, which could be as, as bad as a broken foot. We're going to keep you in a walking boot. So two weeks later, uh, I was in a walking boot, and I was in the San Jose where wide men fought uh, Munoz. And uh, they're like, why are you wearing that? We need you in Macau. And I was like, <laughs> it's a deep bone bruise. And they're like, oh, it's just a bone bruise. You'll be okay. I'm like, I'm not cleared. Doctor hasn't cleared me. So I think two weeks after that, um, it was uh, Dan Hendel had fought Machida, and then uh, I was in LA, and they they said meet us, you know, after the fight. So I went back there, met them. I said, hey, doctor, hasn't cleared me. And they're like, hasn't cleared you? Uh, we, you got to step up for the company. You got to step up for UFC. And I was like, well, I mean, I can't tell the doctor to give me a, a notice. I don't think they can do that. Um, and then. And, I said, look, I'm getting another checkup. Hopefully, um, he'll clear me in a week. And then 
Dana says, okay, you got to let me know right away. That night, I'm driving off, and all of a sudden, my phone blows up, and Dana announces my fight with Rich Franklin in Macau. That, and, you know, I was like, shit. So I did all these crazy stuff, and it's on, like, the Internet where I did uh, uh, bloodletting. I did try some Eastern type and uh, where this, uh, you know, uh, uh, this uh, Eastern doctor would punch a bunch of holes in my foot and squeeze out all the trapped blood or whatever it is. And then, uh, you know, I just did all kinds of different things, and uh, it, it got better, but it, it still wasn't good. And I, I don't think the doctor cleared me for another two weeks, and when I got cleared, I didn't, you know, I, I was not ready to go and fight, you know, Rich in like, you know, seven weeks or six weeks, whatever it was. And then, then they had us go through this crazy, you know, crazy uh, – a media tour, and I ended up jacking up my elbow where I had to get surgery, you know, like uh, uh, five weeks before the fight, and it was it was just a big mess. And then for the Rich Franklin fight, I didn't look the part either. So finally, when I got a chance to have the time to properly train for a fight, I said, I'm gonna get my diet down. I'm gonna, you know, my wife got um, uh, her personal trainer is like a nutritionist, and they they work with like. Uh, like people that do physique and then he put a diet together for me where I'm able to train hard and you know cut the fat and if you you know I started on Instagram and it took a whole year for me to get that way so you know it, I wish it could be overnight or it takes three months but uh, that took a whole year so I started training I was supposed to fight Michael Bisbing in Manchester so I started prepping for the fight but he had a he had to beat Alan Belcher and then, um, um, and the talks was going on with my uh, my manager uh, Gary Barra said, oh, you know what? They're going to give you Bisbing if he beats uh, Alan Belcher. And then so I, I just started training. I started getting on my diet. And then of course Dana's all, hey, I need you in China. I need you for the Ultimate Fighter. I'm like, what about my fight? He's all, don't worry about it. We need you in China. So that's I go over there. I keep on my diet and. Continued with the diet, of course, you know, still had some cheap meals, pizza here and there, but not like not like my old diet where it's eating chocolate like three, four times a week and, you know, pizza. My, you know, I, I, I was able to speed up my metabolism and get in really good shape. And, and I, after all the years, I lifted properly. I, before, I just lift to for, you know, just really light and high reps and then, most of the time I'm either wrestling or hitting pads, but that one I did everything by the books, and I got the results that I want. I, like, like there's a lot of people that are like, it, like bodybuilders. They're like, if you would have took something, you should have been a lot bigger, you know. So, well, see, I just assume you're on drugs because that's why I view the world that anybody that's better than me at anything is just cheating. So, if you were clean. I'd be able to beat your ass. And since I can't do that, all I heard was blah, 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 I cheated, blah, blah, blah. So Here's the case. I didn't find out about the two extra drug tests the week of the fight. So if I was going to do anything to skirt by the test, I should have known. I should have been prepping a month out or six weeks out. But I didn't find out about the blood test and the extra urine test the week of the fight, and no one told me from the UFC. I found out on Twitter that 
Kung Lee and Michael Bisbane is going to go do extra tests. Then when all the all the craziness happened, and I by the way I passed all the tests, all the anabolic. I even posted my uh, my tests after you know UFC announced that I had elevated levels of uh, HGH. So uh, when I when I posted it, yeah, my levels were elevated. But um, if you're if you get in a sauna for 30 minutes and you get uh, your HGH levels checked, it's 140 times, you know, you know, above normal. I was 18 times above normal. So I mean, if they would have just done a little bit of research, then they wouldn't have, you know, had to go through all this. But I mean, you know, whatever the case is, they didn't. Well, so let's, so let's let's scroll back just a little bit to to keep everybody um, following along the timeline. So after the fight, um, blood was drawn, and it was right shipped after off, the fight. Right, right after, after the fight. Kung, Kung, Kurt, not to cut you off, but that's a really interesting part of this. Kung, will you? And and so if someone, when I first heard, and at this time I I didn't even know you on a personal basis. I open up MMA Weekly. I think it was Kung Lee fails test for human growth hormone. My first thought was, huh, I didn't realize they had a realistic, legitimate test for human growth hormone at this time. If they did, why isn't the NFL using it, NBA, MLB, all that kind of stuff? So just in my mind, I was thinking, something here in this story doesn't make sense. And then when I talk to you and I kind of get the backstory of how the test was administered, because the reason why HGS tests right now are so cost prohibitive and so so unreliable, as you just said, any activity naturally increases your HGH levels. To get a, a realistic test, you need to 12 hours of fast, 12 hours of resting, no excitement to get that. And as soon as you do anything exciting or athletic, your body kicks into overdrive and your levels can go through the roof. So is that how they tested you? Were you resting for 12 hours in a dark room and fasting, no food or drink, no activity? Or was it something else? Right after the fight, when I was a bloody mess, um, no more than 15 minutes. Like they walked me from the um, from the octagon into this room, and they're like, "We got to draw your blood." Oh, here, here's a urine cup. Pee in it, which I repeat the night before. I peed in the cup. I got my blood drawn, and this is how like uh, whoever the nurses were. I'm over here talking. I'm like, hey, can uh, we clean the blood off my face? You know, and they're like, as soon as we draw your blood, I look over and blood is spraying out of my vein because they had missed the vein with, or they hit the vein and did something wrong, and the blood was like flying. I'm like, so I plug it, and then they're like, okay, they they put a little bandaid. They went to the other arm and they they got that one, and then they drew some blood, and then uh, then um, then they then they attended to you know, fix me up or, you know, do whatever they did for my eye or put stitches on my eye or whatever. And, uh, you know, that was... But it, it, it was at least a legitimate athletic-based drug testing company, right, where all of the cows... It was in a VADA approved. And then, so for those that don't know, WADA is the World Anti-Doping Agency. So it was not a WADA approved lab. But they did... Like they did bring the one drug test back to the states and had it tested there. So um, the, I did my blood work there in China, but I know they did 
the test over here somewhere. So but, why didn't they just take the blood from Macau to Beijing, which is only a couple hours away, because Beijing has a water lab because of the Olympics? I have no clue. But after three weeks, somehow, mysteriously, my, my, um, my blood was destroyed or whatever the case is. You know, like if I was a UFC, this is the easiest thing, right? There was three other people, me being four people, got drug tested or whatever the case is. And if I'm complaining, hey, my, my levels were, 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 you know, normal after a fight, all they had to do is post Michael's levels, post all the other guys' levels, and then they would have known if I was high or not. Maybe so those guys' levels might be higher. You know, do, do we know what, what Bisping's levels were? Was was his blood, blood drawn immediately after the fight as well? I don't know. Okay. Well, that's that, and that brings up an interesting point that <clears throat> I know myself as a fan and as a part of we're brothers in this class action lawsuit uh, that we believe is showing that the UFC is overly controlling of the market. We would like to see the results of these other drug tests and to see point blank if if the UFC is completely up and up in this, that uh, you were the only one that had these elevated levels, which led them down this road of suspicion, or if everyone had the elevated levels as they should have, but it was never never investigated, never reported, never released. I'm not saying that that's what happened. I'm saying that just makes me wonder what the backstory is here, and I'd be very curious to see the other levels of the other fighters, which they have not released. Well, you know, here's... Here's two, two different scenarios, right? If I was applying for a job and you had to drug test me for like, because they use a, a lab that drug tests for like people who apply for jobs. And of course, they got to make sure that they're drug free. They at least got to keep it for, you know, three months to, to get through their probation period. Because, you know, after probation, then they get hired on full time. But for Vada, they got to keep the blood for at least 10 years. So when when they said, oh, my blood levels were elevated, I asked, why don't you use the blood to retest it again over here? And they're like, well, it's been destroyed. You know? So whatever the case is, they decide to destroy the blood or whoever destroyed the blood. You know, it, it, it was just, uh, you know. Definitely, uh, you know, uh, if if they want to be, you know, the the, uh, you know, the governing body in, in 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 China or in Asia, and then they're just basically what the judge, the jury, and the executioner. You know, I think that's just wrong. You know, and, and at least do some research before you, you know, slap me with, you know, and you know, run run my name through the mud. You know, do some do some like research if you truly care about your fighters. Like I really went, I bent over backwards for the UFC, and I, you know, did everything that they asked me to do. Go to China, give up like you know my big purse, and get not even ten percent of what I would get paid in a purse doing the Ultimate Fighter. You know, saving that show over there. Like even Dana says, if it wasn't for me, that show he doesn't even know he would have had a show. I saved that show over there. I was like picking up the camera, and telling the guys to film, 
So, you know, I I was a company man, but honestly, for some reason, you know, it could have been, you know, there's a lot of things. A lot of people say, well, Kung, did you ever think that, you know, two weeks before um, your fight, uh, you know, Scott Coker becomes president of Bellator? Do you think they were threatened by that? I'm like, why would they be? I, I was under the UFC banner. Why would they, you know, you know, be threatened? I was, but the, the the fact was, my contract was about to run out anyways. But they they know how to maneuver things, and and then uh, you know, um, two weeks before I was supposed to go to to uh, um, to Asia, uh, where I, t I finished my training camp in Vietnam. Uh, Michael Mersh calls me up and says, "Hey, Kung, I need you to sign that that uh, extension." I'm like, well, "You know, I'm gonna I'll do that after my fight. I need to focus on my fight. We really need you to sign it." I didn't sign it, so all kinds of things could be that. So a lot of people just say, "What? What if this? What if that?" I'm like, "You know what? I'll let you assume. I just need to focus on the fight." So. So on. September 30th of 2014, the UFC uh, issued this statement. UFC middleweight Kung Lee tested positive for an excessive level of human growth hormone in his system following his fight at UFC Fight Night in Macau, China, on August 23rd. Due to his positive test result, Lee was suspended by the UFC and notified that he violated the UFC fighter conduct policy and promotional agreement with Zufa LLC. The UFC has a strict, consistent policy against the use of any illegal and or performance-enhancing drugs, stimulants, or masking agents by our athletes. Lee will serve a nine-month suspension and at its conclusion will need to pass a drug test before competing in the UFC again. That statement has since been removed from the UFC's website, but of course the internet forgets nothing. So the, the statement's still out there, it just is no longer sourced off the website. Um, so how were you notified and, you know, if, if you can, um, you know, how did the conversation go? Uh, was your manager with you at the time? Did, was anybody with you listening or part of the conversation that was clearly on your side when you were talking with the UFC? I wasn't the one talking with the UFC. Gary Barra, my manager, was talking to the UFC. And he was just like, holy shit, you know, this is what's going on. So I was like, well. So, so you get the news that you've been suspended online, just like you found out about the fight or in other things by Twitter. By no one's actually calling you and telling you these things. I asked him. I asked Gary to tell him they got to hold on, because when when the, we found out that you know my levels were elevated and what could cause that, we did all these different researches. We even went to the doctors and the the the, the doctor did the whole drug test again, uh, you know, like just to see all the levels. And they were all the similar levels of what their their tests came back at, where I passed all anabolic, I passed everything, but my levels were normal because I had fasted, I had done the proper uh, preparation uh, for HGH, and, then, uh, and but they said, Maybe you might have something in your pituitary gland that you know, you know that could be, you know, pushing out more, you know, HGH. Let me do these research. So I told the UFC, hold on. Oh, I told Gary to tell them, and then uh, 
they didn't bother even when I asked them with a doctor's note. They just went ahead and released the released the news and happened to be on the same day that NFL announces that their HEH level or their HEH testing is going to be going on for their athletes. So, you know, I I don't I don't know if it's coincidence or not, but it's just like hold on for another week. I would have got the info when I came back. The info I was perfectly normal, and she was like, I don't know why, you know, it uh, they didn't give you the you know a chance or at least do some research because you can look it up on Google. You go into the sauna, your levels get elevated 140 percent. If you exercise for 30 minutes, your levels go up, you know. 50 to 40 times. There, mine was 18 times. I was under the limit if they were testing me after an exercise, and this was actually after a fight, and I was bloody, you know, so. So what's interesting is that it should be noted that to the best of, of all the research that I've done, the UFC did absolutely nothing to look into all of this prior to the controversy blowing up. No. Um, now, in the court of public opinion, go ahead. Also, Mr. Lorenzo said, oh, Kung's punishment's not, you know, serious enough. I'm going to tack on another three months on the nine, you know, nine months because, you know, everyone is, you know, I guess saying, oh, Kung only got nine months. And while other, you know, fighters are getting testing for anabolic and they get, you know, the nine months or whatever and, and – uh, I, where I pass everything, but my levels were elevated. And it's just, you know, I just, I felt like I got the, you know, I got the. So, and because, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, so now it becomes really blatant that you are innocent or at least have a case that you can make towards your innocence, but there's I'm, no no sanctioning body that you can appeal to. You actually have to go present your case to actually the people that have already condemned you without a trial, how does that go? That was the case um, at the time, but then luckily for me, uh, Dr. Catlin, if you look him up, he's like one of the main Olympic uh, drug um, scientists um, who's done like over 10 years of research on performance enhancing, and he got on 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 the, the air on the internet and says you've got to drop Kung's case because you didn't do the drug test right. You're going to ruin my research and uh, you know. So it's kind of, it's it's interesting because that there's a, an, a reporter for Bloody Elbow named Gabriel Montoya who <clears throat> I mean and if anybody Googles uh, Kung Lee uh, HGH it's just article after article after article of everybody just, you know, eviscerating you, slamming you, condemning you, uh, trying and convicting you. You were hands down. You were, you know, you had done it. But Gabriel Montoya um, really did an incredible piece about it in very early October, and he spoke with Dr. Don Caitlin. And Don um, oversaw the operation of the UCLA Olympic uh, Analytical Testing Lab for over 20 years. So clearly the guy's an expert. He knows everything that there is to know about um, performance-enhancing drugs. And, and this is a quote from him. Uh, for a male who has fasted and rested for 12 hours prior to giving a blood sample to be tested, which is the proper pr protocol, the normal range is 0.5 nanograms per milliliter. 
For an athlete giving a sample after strenuous activity, such as a fight, the expected range is 20 to 30 nanograms per milliliter. Lee's reading was a bit below 20 nanograms per milliliter, per milliliter which is actually lower than the expected post-exercise percentage range. So he's the first person to come straight out and say, you got to ignore this test. It's ridiculous. It's not going to give you any type of result that you wanted. Um, that was early October. Um, did, did you present that to the UFC? Yeah, we did. And what did they say? Uh, they said that, uh, well, they, well, Gary presented that to them. At the time, I didn't want to talk to them. I was so kind of disgusted with, you know, you know, with what happened. And um, uh, they agreed um, to lift my suspension and, um, and let it go. So, you know, whatever the case is. And so, you know, of course, the day that um, Gary called me and says, hey, they're going to uh, re release a thing and say that, you know, you're you know, your suspension has been lifted and they're pull, they're retracting what happened. You know, of course, you know, Dana called me and tries to give me and tells me that, you know, if I just admit it, um, it'll be easier and the, 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 the public will forgive me more. And, and then look at, you know, Anthony, uh, uh, the, the picture from the New York, uh, giants, uh, he, he got busted for something. And then the, he just says, Oh, you know, Dana was just saying it's easier to just admit it, but I just kind of didn't want to talk to him anymore. I just kind of hang up, and it was just, you know, kind of like, like, you know, I mean, you might as well just send some thugs to my house and strong arm me or something. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. So in the face of all this, this evidence, it really clears your name. Yeah. Instead of them saying, Wow, we jumped the gun. We're sorry about that. Let's do everything we can to clear your name. Dana calls you and says, "We know you're guilty. Just come out and admit it." Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and what did you lose with with this? You you told me before that you'd had investors pull out. Your name had been damaged. Your your children were being threatened. Yeah, I was. People were on like on Instagram, and you know, my my son had a Instagram. We 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 turned it to private now, but they're like. They're like, oh, your your dad's a fucking cheat, and you know. Then I had all these people, you know, talk shit. Of course, all the fans that stood up for me, um, you know, then people were like, I'll kill him. And it was just crazy. I I like screenshot all this shit, but you know, you know. It, it, then there was a few investors from you know, of course, Vietnam wanted to invest in films, and they're like, oh, we're gonna take a step back with all this crazy news. We're gonna, you know, we'll wait till it settles down, but. You know, whatever the case now, it's, you know, uh, I, I, I'm fortunate that people are still requesting me because, you know, my work ethics, whether it's inside, you know, the octagon or inside the ring or on a movie set, I just, I work, you know, to, I'm the first one in and the last one to leave. And, you know, that's always been my, my, my mentality just to, just to outwork everyone and work hard and, you know, do the right thing, and you know, obviously, you know, sometimes you know you get the shit in the stick, and they happen to be the shit that's on the stick. <laughs> and do you have any fights left on your contract with UFC? 
you know what? I they 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 say I have two, but like Dana White had called me to say, hey, let's let's have you fight in New Zealand. I said okay. Hey, um, you know Gary knows about the fight that me and Michael was supposed to have in uh, Manchester. That didn't happen. So when they offer you a fight, your your clock is ticking, and then when they pull it back, that means I shouldn't have any more fights on my contract, but they still, you still have two fights, you can't go fight for anyone else, but luckily I have a very smart, you know, an educated wife who was raised by a lawyer, um, and she got me out of their BS contract, and uh, I'm able to work for, um, you know, Bellator now as a spokesperson, I can't fight for them, but I can work for different, you know, competing, you know, fight groups, you know, and, you know, we just... I, you know, I'm lucky to be able to do that at least. But you know, I, you know, after whatever happened, you know, I definitely like if I had to fight my two last fights for UFC, I'm, you know, why? So they, so there's another chance of them screwing up again. No, screw that. I don't trust him. You know, uh, and the, the funny thing is, like in the beginning, I was like, oh, you know, Dana's really cool. Lorenzo's are really cool. You know, they're 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 like everyone's all you know well not everyone but some people told me ah you know they're you're only good to them whenever whenever they can use you or watch you every time they call is when they want something but you call them you know and I was like yeah that's not right every time I call Dana you know he he helps me get you know something pushed through whether it's a like a sponsor that's not in you know in the states or something and yeah I didn't believe it until until it happened to me so. Now I believe everything that everyone says about them. <laughs> bad so stuff. You, Very so bad. You, you'd essentially rather just retire at this point. It, if you were able to break free, I mean, when we win the lawsuit, although I'm sure it's going to take years for this all to to flush out. If the UFC said, you know what, we're just going to go ahead and release him. You're a free man, Kung Lee. Do what you want. Would you want to fight again? No, you know what? I would definitely kind of. I would want to have a retirement fight, you know. You know, even though my last fight, I, you know, it sucked bad, and you know, um, you know, and you know, Bisbane's is, uh, such a dick too, you know. I've heard that. Yeah, you know, he's so nice in front of you, but then he talks all this shit. And he, he's the one who wanted to test, you know. Um, but you know, whatever the case is, um, you know. But just to let you know, that's the first time I had to say something about any fighters. You know, just, just <laughs> douche. But uh, Kurt, can we can we name this podcast Kung Lee Talk Shit about Brisbane? <laughs> I think I think you guys got so much juice because I really didn't really come out. You know, just because you know Nate, you know uh, the Clash of Clan brothers, <laughs> they give you more than you know. But it's just you know, I'm, it's just. I got such a bad taste. I'm like, I don't even want to fight anymore. That's how, that's that's what they did to ruin my shit. Yeah. You know? so, well, I'm really happy that that yeah, you're telling your story here on this podcast. But months ago, because this is this podcast is really recent. Months ago, I was telling you, Kung, you got to tell this story. Other people need to hear this because I hated. I care about you as a friend, as I've said before several times. I'm a, a fan of yours as a fighter as well. I admire you as a father, as an actor, all the things that you've done. It really pisses me off when good men take the high road and 
bad men don't. And I see that over and over again where there's no there's no depth that the bad people will go to to smear someone's name or ruin their reputation. And then you have the good man saying, no, I'm going to take the high road. So all the information that's out there is just the negative information, and you never get to tell the side of the story that's really going to shed uh, a better perspective on how things really are in this world, in this business. So I'm, I'm really happy. Whether you share the story here or not, I just really wanted the story to be out there. Yeah, well, you know, it's on it's, it's on your site. You better put like the, the like the time codes on where where I talk certain things, right? Because we talk a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff that people know. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a refugee. You know, I I'm lucky to be in the in over here. They know about my story. They know that I'm a traditional and uh, and, a, and a martial artist, but they don't know this 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 meat right here. So, um, and then you know about me saying you know. I happen to get the shit into the stick and someone else the shit on the stick, you know? So whatever, you know? And for the fans out there listening, um, one of the things that I recommend you do, you know, because whenever, uh, you know, somebody gets in trouble, uh, it's pretty easy to, to think, like, well, it's my boss that is really screwing me over, that kind of thing. But I suggest everybody that can to go out and look at the UFC's October 21st statement on it when they rescinded the uh, the the suspension of Kung uh, because it's it's not an apology it's not uh, an admission that they screwed up um, the wording in it is it's either passive aggressive um, or it's it's I don't I'm really not even sure how to describe it I, I think it's it's really like an amazingly insulting statement um, and uh, you know I, I definitely do not have the uh, the hatred of, of the management of Zufa that that Nate and Kung do and not to put you know words in their mouth by use of the term hatred but read that read the statement that came out on on October 21st of uh, 2014 and I think you'll be surprised if you just kind of read between the lines of what they're saying, they they continually reference Kung's high level of HGH. Um, that uh, it doesn't, the test didn't prove he didn't do it. Um, you know, and it, it's just it's a it's a very 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 odd statement. So if people can you know take a take a look at it, I'd read it, but it's nearly a page long. Um, but you know, you hey should. Kung, Nate, um, you know. Uh, What's the word you would use over here when, you know, like John Jones gets busted for like cocaine and what he does? But of course, Zufa or you know, um, they, you know, the, the double standard. They they oh we stand behind our athlete. We you know he's just you know he'll go through rehab one day. Um, and, you know what, what what do you call that? You, yeah. That's the double standard. That's the hypocrisy. Yeah. Yeah. Hip, kind of hypocrites, right? Or contradicting yeah. themselves and yeah, very much so. Is it? If if I was a promoter, I would look to give my athletes the benefit of the doubt at all times, because what benefit is it going to be for me to humiliate or embarrass an athlete? However, if it was true that guilt was obviously the case, well, then of course we need to work to keep keep the sport clean, show that yes, we're legitimate, we're not going to let our guys cheat and get away with it, 
but there's that double standard <clears throat> where certain guys are getting punished for certain things, certain things are not. Uh, I know we've all heard the, the backstories of guys getting popped for drug tests. At, and I was not saying that this ever happened. I'm just saying I've heard of guys getting popped for drug tests that just magically go away. Maybe that's not even the Wissoof. I don't know where I heard that. 36 or 30 years old, it would have magically went away, right? Because uh -huh. I still got, you know, whatever. Well, it's, <laughs> like, it's like those the, guys. The, the problem kind of is your guys' fault, though, because you fight <laughs> MMA under the Zufa umbrella, where clearly if you were in the NFL, I mean, look, you get a DUI, you only get suspended two games. You beat up your wife, you only get suspended four games. You uh, maybe take air out of some footballs, and then you only get suspended like four games. You know, so clearly it's your fault because you're in the wrong sport. Oh, well, Curse, here, you said me, Nate, we, we hate. I, I wouldn't say I hate, but I would say the respect level, if, if there was you know the, the the respect that I had in the beginning is there's it's like nothing there. So that's that's where how I feel about it. It's not like I really you know, unless they get, killed my dog or something. Now they hate them, but they're just you know running business the way they know how to run business. Or um, you know I I just disrespect them. It just it's, it's so short sighted to me that. They have this great group of fighters, and you would think that they'd want to keep them as happy as possible and treat them with respect, build their names, because that's where the pay-per-views come from. People you know, that, that, yeah, the pay-per-view numbers go way down if you don't know who's fighting on the card. But when you do, you know these guys, you're going to buy the pay-per-view. Go ahead. And, and you know the Kotai Arena, you know, Manny, Manny Pacman has uh, fought there. Um, uh, they, they had some like huge Chinese pop star uh, uh, performed there. And when I fought there against Michael Bisping, I didn't beat like gate wise as in money, but head count, I hold the record there in head count. Now, I know they didn't all come for Bisping. They came for my fight against Bisping, but um, most of the people there came to, you know, to support me, you know, so it's, you know, like, like for them to, you know, do that, it's just, uh, man, I, 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 I don't have the words for it, you know. Did you get fight of the night bonus that night? No. Did no, Bisping get fight of the night bonus? No, I didn't get it. See, because I, I thought that Bisping had gotten a bonus, but you hadn't. Of course, that you know. Yeah. That they had withheld yours, but maybe I'm mistaken. They didn't give me shit. Yeah. <laughs> Did, did, they, did you end up getting your your full purse? Yeah, I did. Okay. With interest? No. How long was it withheld for? Uh, they they gave me they gave me the check that night, so. Okay. Unless Dana had to come to my house and get it, I, that would have been fun. <laughs> yeah. So you're part of the class action lawsuit. You know Definitely. what are what are the the top changes? Uh, that you would like to see affected uh, from the lawsuit? Biggest thing is how they treat the fighters. Every fighter should get a fair shake. And uh, yeah. Well, what do you mean by that? Because how you treat somebody can be pretty subjective. You know, as, as a parent, you know. Equally. 
We know that <laughs> we could yeah. give our kids a kiss, but they'll remember the time that we point our finger at them. Well, you know, things that happened uh, myself or Nate or it just there, there's got to be some some kind of rules or some kind of guidelines instead of having the the main uh, guys or the promoters make the rules. You know. It, 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 I just uh, for you know one of course. Yeah. Well, and this is what I hear from a lot of the guys in the lawsuit is, yes, they're they're upset about the pay. Yes, they're upset about the sponsorships. But to to compound on top of that, the disrespect that they get, the way that that the fighters are treated, and we're very. We're emotional guys, and we're very respectful to each other unless we're, <laughs> something is said, and we don't stand for a lot of sass. And to be treated that way over and over again, just as uh, expendable and, and treated disrespectfully, uh, let alone the, the backdoor deals where I know Vanderlei has just come out and said uh, the UFC has fixed fights and Tito Ortiz agreed with him. I personally have never seen that. I've never seen a fight blatantly fixed. But I think you could definitely point to some manipulations that have occurred by giving guys some extra bonuses off the books or behind the scenes, not not engaged with a fight of the night performance, but just we want to see you do better, so we're going to support you by giving you more money. That would be very similar to the NBA deciding to give New York and L.A. an extra $10 million salary cap so they'll have a better team, so they'll make it to the finals because that's what's best for the NBA and basketball as a whole. Maybe it is. That's not sports. That's blatant manipulation of sports. It's supposed to be the best versus the best. And giving somebody an extra million dollars or an extra payday, whatever it may be, is definitely going to manipulate the outcome and give somebody an unfair advantage. You know, one of the things that I'd be very interested in seeing is, uh, and I don't know if it could come about from the lawsuit, but I'd like to see if there was any documentation from Zufa um, directly towards athletic commissions dictating what it is that they would like to see refs do and not do. Uh, one of my biggest issues with MMA has always been the uh, excessive presence of a referee during a fight. Um, meaning that if Nate's on top of me and he's raining down punches and if a referee says Kurt, you got to move or I'm going to stop the fight. The referee is influencing that fight, and he shouldn't be doing that because if Nate hears that, Nate's going to think, I need to punch a whole bunch of more times. Now, let's say I escape that position. Is Nate now with the same gas tank that he would have had had he not thrown extra amounts of punches? Uh, so I, I think that there definitely could be some influence coming through the back door of, of telling refs um, what they would like to see the refs do versus not do. Because uh, I think a ref's job is to keep his mouth shut. If somebody gets kicked in the nuts, you got that five minutes, and that's the time when they talk. But at no point should a referee ever be talking to a fighter. What do you think, Con? I mean... Uh, that's like a double edge, you know. Um, definitely, uh, I think they should let the fight run run its course, and in, unless a fighter can defend himself, that's when they step in. But it, there, there's just been 
a little bit too much inconsistency with referees, so there should just be like a guideline. What they need to do, what they need to say, when they need to step in, and when they need to be, you know, staying back and just <laughs> making sure the fight is, you know, going on. Well, what do you got? What do you got going on now outside of all this MMA bullshit and lawsuits and all that? What are your next big projects? Um, I just got done doing a short film, trying to introduce the the, the character and uh, my uh, film that was one the best best uh, name Dragon. Film. Yeah, Cody the Dragon, and I'm just uh, just uh, talking to some producers about some projects that you know can't really talk about right now until it's uh, officially signed and then. Uh, then I, then then I can announce it, but until it's you know until it's uh, uh, signed, then it's it's not real. That's how it is in Hollywood. There's a lot of things I got going, but uh, you know until I sign on the dotted line, then 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 I'll announce it. How old are your kids? I have a fourteen, uh, a ten, and a five. All boys. Do you have them training? They're all training. Yeah. And what? What are they training? Um, well, um, the other two boys, like they, they, they were training at Smash, and, uh, um, uh, and they, you know, now, now we're over here. I try to train, get them in wrestling, Muay Thai, but the, our home base is Smash Gym. So why do you hate America so much, Con? I don't hate America. <laughs> well, uh, you named your son. Robert E. Lee, after the Confederate general of those treasonous, seceding states. You know, that sounds like you hate America, huh? Can't, can't he be for slavery and still love America? Didn't we just prove that? <laughs> That's right. So, um, so he's with, like, Suzanne is my wife now. So her, her father and her stepfather, one is Robert, one's Eric. That's why we name you know, how how convenient, huh? How convenient. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> just just tell That's the truth. Yeah. No, 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 no. Quit. Nine eleven. Too soon. All right, fellas. Anything else? Uh, hey, Kung. Where can people follow you at? Uh, Kungli one eight five on Twitter or Kungli one eight five on Instagram and on Facebook. You know. Um, there's a little blue mark. That's the real me. At, at one time, there was like 15 different fake accounts, but I think. Uh, um, Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> wanted uh, to, to get some some Kung Lee tail. <laughs> if I figured if they they meet me at the hotel, it's too late then. Yeah. Actually, I got a credit UFC PR for um, helping with you know. Deleting some of those accounts. So damn man, still the good guy. Still the good guy. <laughs> Kong, it's been awesome, man. And especially as a fan, I've loved watching you over the last decade or so, twelve years. Uh, I think the very first time I I watched you fight was in two thousand and two, uh, and I've just enjoyed it ever since. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And Nate, as always, I appreciate how much you think of me. Nate, I'm going to stake you in the next war. Bring it. <laughs>
All right, fellas, have a good night. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kong. All right. Thank you.